morning, everybody. Happy Sunday, the first weekend of celebrating for Christmas. Well, not really for some of you. I mean, people like me, I start right after Halloween. But anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up in Dallas State, which means we can get to you and help you out. The problem is California is such a big state that it might take us a while to get to you, like maybe one or two days, even though I have people in areas. A lot of rural space. You know, we have our west coast with the ocean. We've got farmland in the middle, and we've got high desert, low desert, mountains. You name it, we've got it here in California. And um, so it might take us a couple days to get to you, but in the case that it does, we do have sensitives on staff who can phone you. And if you do have something paranormal going on, in most cases, they can settle the energy down until we can get out there. Okay, so it's not, it's not going to take us more than, say, three days to get to you. Okay, that being said, welcome to Sunday Reading Day. Uh, today, we stuck, we've we been reading the Lizzie Borden book every Sunday. But today is different because we're gearing up for Christmas. And so we're going to be reading from some, I'm going to be reading about some real creepy holiday stories. And uh, the thing I wanted to add was that probably once a week, because um, there's I found this other book that I really wanted to get into, and I love I love the traditions of Christmas from around the world. In fact, that taught me to have fondue on Christmas Eve, that kind of thing from Switzerland. Um, so what I decided to do is I have I have another book, um, Christmas Traditions from Around the World. So I'll probably be reading that at least once a week, maybe on Wednesdays. We'll make that a Wednesday reading night, okay? So we'll have this book and Christmas Christmas. So this is The uh, Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays by Sylvia Schultz. Introduction. Again, I will be reading for about an hour, and if there's something in here that freaks you out that you don't like, please don't turn me into the internet police. Just move on and watch something else, okay? But in the meantime, sit on your couch, put your fluffies on, and maybe drink some hot cocoa, and watch, look at your tree, and um, just enjoy the stories. Introduction. It's the most wonderful time of the year, and it's loaded with ghosts. They say the veil between this world and the next is thinnest at Halloween, but there's still plenty of spillover at other times of the year. The dead of winter is a prime time for spookiness. December isn't just for Christmas. Hanukkah celebrates one of the miracles of the Jewish faith when one day's, when one day's worth of oil for the temple lamps lasted for eight days. Kwanzaa, too, gives a nod to the bright happiness of the season. Maybe we're so eager to bring light to this time of year because it's, well, it's pretty bleak. Take away all the festival of light celebrations, whether religious or secular, and you're left with cold, cold gray days and even colder nights. And those nights are long. For centuries, we've chosen to have celebrations around the winter solstice, the longest night of the year. There's something in our human nature that wants to fight the darkness. This book itself is a celebration of the weirdness that has swirled around the Christmas season for many centuries. Within these pages, you'll find stories to warm your heart and tales to chill you just as effectively as, cutting, as a cutting December wind. You'll find creatures of Christmas folklore from ages past, monsters that will haunt your dreams far more, far more than the dreaded phrase, batteries not included, or even the chilling some assembly required. You'll also find some fairly creepy tales that just happen to take place in the darkest, coldest part of the year. Not all Christmas ghost stories have cheerful endings, like a Christmas carol. Even in Dickens' book, there's a fair amount of creep factor 
and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Not all winter ghost stories take place beside a welcoming, crackling, cozy hearth fire. We started to embrace this chance to revisit Halloween weeks later. In 2015, the movie Krampus made $61.5 million at the box office. Recent years have also seen many commercial haunted houses realizing the potential of this out-of-season spookiness. There are now Krampus-themed haunted houses operating in Phoenix, Austin, Nashville, Denver, Green Bay, and many other cities. And yes, Krampus plays in Peoria, the haunted infirmary, and Illinois' top 10-rated haunt on the grounds of the Peoria State Hospital in Bartonville. Switches gears in December and welcomes Krampus to its spooky halls. Even Disneyland gets in on the fun as the haunted mansion is transformed into a nightmare before Christmas team ride. Most of these haunts are simply called Krampus, a haunted Christmas, but some use the holiday as a chance to get creative with groan-inducing holiday puns. The Fright Before Christmas, Santa's Sleigh, Jingle Howl, and A Nightmare on 34th Street are just a few of these haunt names. Chamber of Horrors in New York even lets you get your picture taken on Santa's lap in case you're still planning your Christmas card. And for those of us who still feel warm and fuzzy around the holidays, some haunted houses offer a $3 discount for haunt-goers who bring a toy to donate to charity. Some of these stories were collected centuries ago. Some of them were told to me by the people who experienced them. All of them are true. In the sense that they held truth for the people who were there and who later shared them with others. They were true at the time, and that's good enough for me. This is my goal in writing this book, to share all these marvelous, terrifying, wondrous stories with you. The book is divided into several sections for your reading pleasure. God Rest You, Merry Gentlemen, takes a look at the Victorians and their passion for ghost stories at Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas, or else, introduces some bizarre Christmas customs and looks at the raucous side of the season as it used to be celebrated. He sees you when you're sleeping, introduces the monsters and demons of Christmas. In the bleak midwinter, describes unsettling events that unfolded in the coldest, darkest part of the year. The darkest midnight December is a look at tragedies that happen to take place in that month. Tis the Season is a collection of ghost stories all through the month of December, and it came upon a midnight clear, gathers ghost stories that happened on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. So decorate the tree, whip up some eggnog, hang the stockings, and don't forget to check under the bed. Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. God rest you, merry gentlemen, the Victorians. So why tell ghost stories at Christmas? That ship sailed on November 1st, didn't it? Ho, 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 not so fast. Take away the brightly colored lights, the promise of a full stocking, and the breakneck shopping frenzy, and you have what is admittedly and admittedly a very bleak time of year. December marks the turning of the year, the shortest days and the longest nights. For centuries, it was the perfect time to curl up with a good ghost story. In 1891, in 1891, in the introduction to an anthology of Christmas ghost stories entitled Told After Supper, oh, you know what, let me check one thing on my mic. Give me one second. Let me reset my mic. That's better. Okay. In 1891, 
and the introduction to an anthology of Christmas ghost stories entitled Told After Supper. The British writer Jerome K. Jerome wrote, Whenever five or six English-speaking people meet around a fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about specters. Part of this hunger for, ta- for the tale of ghostly re- revenants came simply from the time of year Christmas is celebrated. This went back centuries, long before the Victorian era. The Puritan leader, Oliver Cromwell, was also the Lord Protector of England, which meant that he got to make the rules for a while. In the mid-1600s, Cromwell tried, tried hard to abolish the celebration of Christmas altogether. After all, he argued, nowhere in the Bible does it expressly say that Christ's birthday is on December 25th. As a matter of fact, shepherds in the Holy Land watch over their flocks by night in the springtime, April or early May. It wasn't until the 4th century that Pope Julius I fixed December 25th as the date to celebrate the birth of Christ. The Protestants also thought that celebrating Christmas smacked of Catholicism, which they, they were either to abolish, which they were eager to abolish. So Christmas was a non-starter for quite a few centuries in England, unless you were in the Catholic minority. December 25th, as the date for Christmas, was not an arbitrary choice for the early Christians. Both Yule and Sol Invictus, which is the festival of the unconquered sun, commemorated the winter solstice. The symbolic connotations of these holidays coincided with the Christians' belief that the Son of God had come to the world. Pope Julius I simply co-opted the dates that were already significant to pagan, Romans, and Northern Europeans. Of course, this meant that the raucous pagan celebrations, the Saturnalia parties, and the topsy-turvy turnarounds got brought into early Christmas celebrations too. The winter solstice was also considered to be the spookier of the two solstices. Rather than long hours of daylight and a short night, the winter solstice marked the turning of the year with the shortest day and the longest night. Parentheses. The increased hours of darkness meant, of course, that spooks and monsters and things that go bump had a lot more time to roam the earth during the winter months. It brought to mind the death of the sun and the thinning of the veil between worlds. The Victorian Christmas celebration then, which already made a heavy use of pagan symbols like Yule logs, holly leaves, and even Father Christmas, also embraced the holiday's nodding acquaintance with the supernatural. This helped to create one of, Victor- one of the Victorian era's most enduring holiday traditions, the Christmas ghost story. Even Christmas games of the period held an element of terror. The popular game of Snapdragon involved putting raisins, plums, or almonds in a bowl of brandy and then setting the brandy on fire. Players tried to snatch a raisin out of the flaming bowl out of the flaming bowl, and pop it into their mouth to extinguish it. Another game had the players attempting to bite apples, which were tied to one end of a stick. The other end had a lighted candle stuck to it. The phrase, don't try this at home, kids, had not been invented yet. <laughs> other games smacked of sadomasochism. Yeah, masochism. The game of hot cockles involved putting your head in someone's lap while trying to guess who was hitting you from behind. The kneeler, who was it, put their hand behind their back, palm up. The other players took turns smacking the palm in an anonymous low five, 
Shooting the Wild Mare was a similar guessing game, which involved a whack on the foot. But after the brandy's blue flames had died down, after the Christmas goose was picked, was, was picked down to the bones, after the last candle had guttered to a sullen yellow glow, then, ah, then came the ghost stories. And what stories there were. The Kit Bag, 1908, by, by Algernon Blackwood, tells of a man packing a haunted suitcase on Christmas Eve in preparation for an overseas journey. Mrs. J.H. Riddell wrote A Strange Christmas Game in 1863 about a brother and sister who spend Christmas in a haunted house and witness the ghostly reenactment of a murder. And speaking of games, Smee by A.M. Barrage, 1931, is a real spine tingler. A house full of partiers are playing hide-and-seek on Christmas Eve in a big old rambling country house when they discover during the game that an extra player has snuck in and joined them. All of these tales and more can be enjoyed at www.gothichorrorstories.com. One of the most famous Christmas-themed stories is another tale of hide-and-seek. This one, quite a bit more gruesome than the atmospherically chilling Smee. This story is sometimes presented as a true ghost tale, but it has been through so many incarnations that it should more truly be considered an urban legend. The following is just one of a half-dozen versions of the story. The story is set sometimes in Bramshill House. In New Hampshire, in Hampshire, England, Hampshire, England, originally built in the 1600s, it was renovated extensively over the centuries. The current manor house was once owned by Sir John Cope, and it is his daughter Anne, whose ghost now haunts the mansion. Anne was married on Christmas Day. During the wedding celebration, Anne suggested the guests all play a game of hide and seek. The guests all scattered throughout the huge country home. Anne scampered to a little-used part of the manor house, where, to, where, to her delight, she found a large oak chest. She climbed inside and pulled the lid down on top of herself. It was a good hiding place, much too good. Fifty years later, some unsuspecting Cope, did, okay, some unsuspecting Cope descendant, opened the ornate carved, ornately carved chest and got a horrifying surprise. Anne's mummified remains were still dressed in her wedding gown. Scratch marks on the inside of the lid were, were a gruesome testimony to her final hours. In 1953, Bramshill House was sold out of the family and turned into a police training center. Many cadets, so the story goes, have seen a lady dressed in a long white gown drifting around the mansion or caught whiffs of the sweet scent of her wedding bouquet. Sure, it's an urban legend of source. But it's also the kind of kind of a cool story, and as urban legends go, this one has staying power. Its origins can be traced back even to before the Victorian era. The story can be found in a poem by Thomas Haynes Bailey, seventeen ninety seven to eighteen thirty, sometimes called the Ballad of the Mistletoe Bride. The poem and the story illustrate the technique of setting a tragic story at Christmas. It's it's an example of a joyful time of year and a joyous occasion, which is a wedding, with the main character's horrifying final moments being buried alive. The Victorians just love this kind of stuff. 
As far back as Shakespeare's time, Christmas was associated with wandering spirits. In Hamlet, the guard Marcellus tries to explain the sudden disappearance of Hamlet's father's ghost. Some say, quote, some say that ever against that season comes, wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated, the bird of dawning singeth all night, singeth all night long. And then they say, no spirit dares stir around. The nights are wholesome, but no planets strike. No fairy, ta no fairy takes, nor which hath power to charm. So hallowed and gra gracious is the time. End quote. Maybe Marcellus was doing his own version of whistling, of whistling past the graveyard or hiding under the cover so the ghost can't get him. But this bit of ghost lore tells us a lot about the Victorian attitude of later years towards spirits. There were spirits aplenty running around Victorian England, but according to the lore, Christmas Eve was the one night of the year when ghosts were not allowed to roam Earth. Maybe that's why the Victorians felt so safe telling spooky tales on Christmas Eve. They could talk about ghosts all they wanted to, with no fear of drawing unwanted attention from the spirit world. Another theory of the Victorian fondness for ghost stories is that people of the era were just glad to have a safe, well-lit place to tell those stories. The Industrial Revolution of the late 18th and early 19th centuries marked a move, marked a move towards living in big cities. As England's population moved into urban areas, nature and the darkness found there, found there after the sun went down became unfamiliar and frightening. People of the early 19th century had, only recently, gotten used to the luxury of having dependable sources of light after nightfall. Gas lighting was invented in the, in the 1790s, and gas lighting of streets and buildings began in the early 1800s. Most streets in London were lit by gas lamps as early as 1816, but gas as a means of lighting homes was distrusted for the first 50 years or so. There's also a theory that gas fixtures themselves contributed to the epidemic of Victorian ghost sightings. There's a reason the bright interior decorating of the Georgian period, all that beautiful white and gold decor, turned dark and gloomy in the Victorian age. Dark Victorian wallpaper hid soot, hid soot better. Hid soot. Soot from the fire. Soot. Hid, hid soot better. I did it again. Hid soot better. Gas fixtures began to show up in city homes and manor houses in the mid-19th century, and sometimes they leak gas and tainted the air with noxious fumes. A tightly laced corset was only one reason for a well-bred Victorian lady to faint. Another reason was lack of oxygen in gas-lit parlors. There's a theory in paranormal circles that gas leaks sometimes lead to hallucinations of wispy figures or shadows seen out of the corner of the eye. This would go far towards explaining the explosion of ghost sightings in the Victorian era. Whether or not 19th century ghosts were the product of, le of leaky gas fixtures, we have the Victorians to thank for a wealth of supernatural literature. The late 19th and early 20th centuries saw countless Christmas gift books published that were entirely devoted to ghost stories. These weren't cheap dime novels either. These were classy, upscale publications of quality design and prestigious writing. 
contributors to these gift books and annually published anthologies included Edgar Allan Poe, Mary Shelley, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and Rudyard Kipling. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle actually introduced the character of Sherlock Holmes in a story for a Christmas annual. But the granddaddy of all Christmas ghost stories is, of course, A Christmas Carol. The most beloved of Dickens' works was written for a most unsentimental reason. The author had bills to pay. In October 1843, Charles Dickens was hurting for money. He got married in 1836, and he and his wife had already produced four children, with number five on the way. Dickens had an almost pathological horror of being in debt. His father had been thrown in a debtor's prison when Charles was 12 years old. The grown-up Charles Dickens refused, above all else, to put his own family through such a shame and de degradation. He needed a project to raise some fast cash. He had an idea for a story of a miserly old curmudgeon whose grumpy outlook on life is changed by visits from three spirits. Dickens was actually recycling material he had already written in the Pickwick Papers. In those Pickwick Papers, Dickens wrote, The story of the goblins who stole a sexton. This told the story of Gabriel Grubb, and isn't, just, and isn't that just the perfect name for a grave digger? A drunken sexton who chooses to spend Christmas Eve digging a grave instead of celebrating the holiday. Parentheses. I suppose someone's got to do it, but hey, Christmas is Christmas. End of parentheses. Grubb is dragged off by goblins and has a, cha a change of heart after the goblin king shows him a series of visions that prove his life is worth living after all. Dickens took this theme and embroidered it. Instead of visions, Ebenezer Scrooge received actual visits from ghosts. First, his late partner, Jacob Marley. Then the spirits of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas yet to come. For good measure, Dickens tossed in a ridiculously sentimental subplot involving Tiny Tim Cratchit, the kind of sickly poor child the Victorians loved to weep over. He wrote the book in a fever of production. It was on his publisher's desk in less than six weeks. And the gamble paid off, big time. A Christmas Carol was released on December 19th, 1843. The original print run of 6,000 copies sold out within three days. Since then, it has never been out of print, taking on a life far beyond the printed page. It has been produced as a play, a musical, and many movies the earliest being a 1908 version by Thomas Edison. Dickens kept up with this fashion of telling ghost stories at Christmas time. Until his death in 1870, Dickens produced a number of Christmas annuals and invited other writers to contribute to these anthologies. With the success of A Christmas Carol, Dickens could pay off the debt that had led to its creation. Dickens was set for life, in fact, he was able to leave both his wife, from parentheses, from whom he had separated in 1858, and his mistress, an actress he met in 1857, independently, wealthy, for the rest of their lives, not too shabby. Incidentally, it seems that Charles Dickens has joined the cast of spirits who populate his best-known work. In life, he spent time at the Omni Parker House, Hotel in 1867 to 1868, 
while touring the United States giving readings of his works. He could be heard in his room practicing his delivery late in the night. In modern times, yes, who stayed in the Dickens suite, reported seeing the ghostly image of the great author himself in a large mirror that used to hang in the room. The phantom would appear in the mirror, pacing back and forth, reading a Christmas carol out loud. When spoken to, the ghost would vanish. Many hotel guests also reported that the elevator would stop on the third floor of the hotel, even though no one had pressed the button. Was it the ghost of Dickens heading back to his room? The haunted mirror spent many years hanging on the wall at the hotel until it was moved a few blocks away to the Tremont Temple Baptist Church and now hangs on the second floor at the very end of the hallway. It wasn't only famous writers who contributed stories to these, Christmas, to the Christmas annuals. Folks who didn't have a literary reputation to uphold but who had an interesting tale to tell, often shared their experiences with the magazines. A major McGregor, McGregor shared his tale with real ghost stories, which was the celebrated Christmas edition of the Review of Reviews. At the end of 1871, the major went to Ireland to visit his relative who lived in Dublin. In January 1872, this relative's husband fell ill. The major sat up with the sick man for several nights until, it seemed, a corner had been turned. On that night, the Major felt confident about leaving the patient to sleep alone, and he himself went to the guest room for some much-needed rest. He told the footman to wake him if the patient suddenly took a turn for the worse. Then he went to bed. The Major was awakened sometime later by someone giving him a push on the shoulder. He came awake immediately and said, Is there anything wrong? He got no answer, just another push. The major, thinking it was the footman, got annoyed and snapped. Can you not speak, man? And tell me if there was anything wrong. His visitor stayed silent. The major, not wanting another shove on the shoulder, made a grab in the darkness and caught a human hand, warm, plump, and soft, obviously not the hand of the footman. The major asked, who are you? but again got no answer. He tried to pull the person towards him, but he couldn't. Quote, I will know you, I will know who you are, the major cried. He held the stranger's hand tightly in his right hand and explored the arms with his left hand. He felt a wrist, a wrist and an arm enclosed in a tight-fitting sleeve of some heavy winter fabric with a linen cuff. But when he felt up past the elbow, the arm just stopped. The major was seriously freaked out by this and dropped the hand he was holding. The clock struck two, and the major knew there would be no more sleep for him that night. The next morning, the major told the household what had happened. The servants of the house had a ready explanation. It must have been the master's old Aunt Betty, who lived in the upper part of the house for many years and who had died at the very great age, at a very great age over 50 years before. Not all Christmas ghost stories were published in magazines. Many families had their own collections. Many were brought out to be enjoyed and added to the year after year. <clears throat> Let me have some water. Wow. It's really dry in here.
All right. One of the most celebrated personal collections was written by Lord Halifax, published in 1936. It is still available today. His son wrote years later about his fond memories of Christmas. As long as, quotes, as long as I can remember, my father's ghost book was one of the most distinctive associations of Hickledon, which is the family home. He kept it always with great care himself, from time to time making additions to it in his own hand and bringing it out on special occasions such as Christmas to read some of the particular favorites aloud before we all went to bed. I will recollect my mother protesting, although I think almost inevitably to no effect against the children being frightened too much. The victims themselves, fascinated and spellbound by a sense of delicious terror, never failed to ask for more. I myself would, would have been right at home with the Halifax children. So here, in the spirit of Christmas and of that grand old tradition of the season, I offer this collection of true ghost stories. I hope it brings you as much wonder and terror as Lord Halifax's stories brought to his children. We wish you a Merry Christmas, or else. Bizarre Christmas Traditions. And a quick reminder, I do have permission from the author and publisher to be reading this book. Christmas hasn't always been Tiny Tim saying, God bless us, everyone. Centuries ago, it was more of a matter of every man for himself. It was a time of carousing, of, of turning of the social order of things upside down. It was, in short, a time for shenanigans. Even in modern days, we still cling to a cozy Victorian ideal of the holidays, say Christmas, and most of us will reflexively think of family gathered around a colorfully lit tree, a tree with presents piled underneath it, for whether or not that imaginary family will get along with each other without the lubricating effects of copious amounts of rum, spiked eggnog is another matter. But before the Victorians came along and settled things down, Christmas was not Quite the domestic holiday of Dickens, one horse sleigh rides and courier and Ives prints. Instead, it was a hot holiday of boisterous revelry, sort of a mashup of Halloween, New Year's Eve, and Mardi Gras. The Romans started the custom of giving gifts at the solstice celebration. Winter solstice, the shortest day and the longest night of the year, comes from the Latin comes from the Latin for the sun stands still, although the winter solstice was called Bruma to distinguish it from Solstice, the summer solstice. Saturnalia and Calendae were both well-loved Roman holidays. At Saturnalia, slaves were allowed to the run of the house, and masters were obliged to serve them. And Calendae, I hope I'm saying that right, marked new beginnings. The 4th century writer, Libanius, <laughs> Libanius, had this to say about the celebrations. Quote, The feast of the calendar is honored as far as the Roman Empire stretches. Everywhere is singing and feasting. The rich enjoy luxury, but the poor also set better food than usual upon their tables. The desire to spend money grips everybody. People are not merely bountiful to themselves, but to their fellow humans. A stream of present pours itself out on all sides. The calendar bring all work to a halt 
and allowed humans to surrender themselves to pure pleasure. Saturnalia was just one of the many holidays that made up the Roman calendar. But it was one of the biggest. The lower classes looked forward to the role reversal that came at the turning of the year. Household slaves, especially, jumped at the chance to be in charge for a while, to be served by their master and mistress. Even after the fall of the Roman Empire, this role reversal at Christmas time continued to be one of the few perks enjoyed by the lower classes. The custom of wassailing or going door to door to beg for alms began way back in the early Middle Ages. The practice continued all through the Middle Ages as a way to keep the social and political order stable. You think giving the girl who cuts your hair an extra tip at Christmas is a new thing? Think again. In medieval times, tradesmen would ask their customers for gifts or largess at the holidays, and sometimes they would threaten retribution if refused. A morning newspaper chucked under a hedge. Uh, okay, a morning newspaper chucked under the under a hedge instead of being delivered to your welcome mat is one thing. To have someone responsible for guarding your house slack off, or actively invite thugs to ransack your home while they stand by watching is something else entirely. This was a problem as far back as 1419 England, when the Corporation of London ordered the service of city officers to stop the custom of asking for Christmas offerings from victualling trades, sometimes with menaces, if, with menaces if, if refused. So the lower classes were discouraged from wassailing. That didn't stop them. Even the practice of caroling and a cookie or three, quite the opposite. In fact, old-time carolers were a rowdy, often destructive bunch. Consider the lyrics to We Wish You a Merry Christmas. Now bring us a figgy pudding and bring it right here. We won't go until we get some, so bring it right here. We sing these lyrics without a second thought. But when that song was written, the singers were a lot more aggressive in their demands. They weren't kidding about it. Imagine that you were someone fairly high up on the social ladder, either in England or in one of the big American cities, Philadelphia, Boston, someplace like that. You're relaxing with your family on Christmas Eve. You'll wait until New Year's to exchange gifts because that's a great way to acknowledge fresh beginnings. For now, you're content to enjoy some quiet time with your loved ones, but you keep one ear cocked for trouble. And there it is, a pounding on the door. The maid hurries to open it, fearing it will break under the fists of the drunken hooligans. Your house clearly isn't their first stop of the evening. A half dozen thugs swagger into your parlor, into your front parlor, their boots tracking snow and mud out of your carpet. One of them, clearly the leader, calls himself the Lord of Misrule. He yells at you to bring out several bottles of your best wine and plenty of good food, especially cake, if you have it, and he knows you do. The rowdies spend an hour or so swinging claret claret, and mashing cake crumbs into the doilies. But what can you do? You can't tell them to leave. It's tradition. They finally leave. And you breathe a sigh of relief. You're out a couple of bucks since they demanded money too. And your parlor is trashed, but they're gone. That's over with. Until the next bunch shows up, it's going to be a long holiday season. 
It's not too much of a stretch to say that Clement Seymour, with his poem A Visit from St. Nicholas, single-handedly turned society's perception of Christmas 180 degrees. With this poem, better known by its first line, which was the night before Christmas, more completely upended the perception of Christmas as a time of riotous misrule. Instead, he introduced the character of St. Nicholas as the polar opposite of a lord of misrule. Instead of a bunch of rowdy young men bursting into the house uninvited, one man, solo, comes into the house. He hasn't been invited. Sorry, he hasn't been invited in either. But he comes in silently without the boisterous good cheer of the wassailers, a good cheer that could turn ugly in a moment. St. Nicholas is obviously a member of a lower working man class. He holds the stump of a pipe clenched in his teeth, which was an affectation of the laboring class. Dandies smoked pipes with long stems. Working men preferred to snap their pipe stems off short. Also, he opens up a peddler's pack, but he poses no threat to the household. As a matter of fact, St. Nicholas displays his own largesse. Instead of demanding gifts from the narrator, buying food, liquor, presents, and money, St. Nicholas leaves gifts for households. And most importantly, instead of threatening the narrator, we won't go until we get some. St. Nicholas expressly lets the narrator know he has nothing to fear. His appearance and behavior, although startling, are absolutely non-threatening. At about the same time, Clement Moore published A Visit from St. Nicholas in 1822. Society's opinion was turning against public displays of drunken rowdiness at Christmas. It was around this time that people began to buy Christmas presents for each other and for their children, rather than making them. Although, even then, a handmade gift, or at least a hand-finished gift, was much preferable to a completely store-bought item. Merchants wanted, merchants wanted to make their shops safe, appealing places, free from unwanted attention of drunken, free from the unwanted attention of drunk, attention to drunken revelers. Instead of being reported in regular newspaper articles, accounts of rambunctious gang behavior started to show up in the police blotter section of the paper. The boorish behavior frowned upon by genteel society was quite literally mar was quite literally. Marginalized. I cannot say that word today. And it eventually faded. Wassailing had largely died out in England by the 1930s, even though the folks who used to practice the obsolete custom were still alive and well. Parentheses. Social programs by then were helpful enough to the poor so that they no longer needed to beg, even at Christmas time. End parentheses. By the 1970s, though, Groups in the east and west of England started up again, singing traditional carols and offering drinks of beer or cider for the Wassa Bowl. These groups do collect money in exchange for the caroling, but now the money raised is donated to charity. Quick drink, guys. It is warm and dry in here. I think if I did that one while I was doing the show, wouldn't that make for a fun show? Yikes. One of the most puzzling and, to modernize, grotesque example of a Christmas ritual reversal is the English custom of hunting, killing, and displaying of wrens. Wrens are the smallest bird native to Europe 
and killing one has for centuries been regarded as a cowardly act sure to bring bad luck down on the perpetrator. This belief goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans. The early medieval Irish writer Cormac of Cashel said that the wren got its old Irish name, Dren, D-R-E-A-N, from Druid-Bird. or Druid bird. The ancient Irish used the wren for fortune-telling. But by the 17th century, the Irish were killing wrens at Christmas. This was also a custom in the British Isles and in the south of France. Teenage boys would carry a holly bush with bunches of dead birds and colorful ribbons tied to it from house to house, displaying their grisly trophies and asking for money. Later, the dead bird was carried in a box, and the wren boys were put on small skits or mock combats for the entertainment of their audiences. This custom continued through the 18th and 19th centuries. Most of the time, the tiny corpse was carried around and displayed on a ribbon-bedecked bier. But in England, by the 19th century, the hunters had switched to putting the wrens alive into a box. The box, too, was festively decorated, with colored paper and ribbon, or ribbons hung from the top, two candles at the sides, and glass windows at either end, so the captive birds could be viewed. This box was slung between two poles and carried around to accompany the carolers. This method of capturing the birds alive took more skill and meant that the birds could be released, safe and sound, after Christmas. When hunting along with caroling and wassling was one of the several ritual reversals carried on by working class people in the 17th century, 17th through 19th centuries. Much earlier than that, though, members of the higher social classes were getting up to their own Christmas shenanigans, and some took it, well, a little too far. Most of the records we have of the medieval period in Europe come down to us from church, from the church, as priests and monks were generally the record keepers of the time. By the 12th century, some of the clergy in France had developed a Christmas celebration that evoked the pagan merrymaking of ancient Saturnalia. They called it the Feast of Fools, or, uh, I can't say, or A's, I'm going to say A's, or subdeacons, and it spread rapidly from France into the Flanders and then to England, into Flanders and England. The point of this originally was for the higher-ranking clergy to practice humility by letting the lower orders lead the worship services at New Year's. Soon, though, it evolved, oh, my back's got to twitch it, Yikes. Soon it evolved into a general Christmas time celebration, with the rites being changed to suit the, the burlesque revelry. As early as 1236 and 1238, Robert Grossetest, Bishop of Lincoln, had to issue an edict forbidding his clergy to completely upend the order of worship. They were pretending to worship demons. In 1333, Judge John B. No, not Judge, I'm sorry. In 1333, John E. Grandison, Bishop of Exeter, began a 30-year campaign to abolish the Feast of Fools in his cathedral. Apparently, the lower clergy talked to the choir, talked to choir boys into throwing mud at each other during the services on the three holy on the three holy days after Christmas. The congregation loved it. They dissolved into disorderly laughter and illicit mirth. But the bishop was not amused. 
By the early 15th century, the practice was no longer tolerated. There was, however, a much more enduring tradition, the choosing of the boy bishop. In the early 10th century in Germany, the junior clergy and assistants of, and assistants of cathedrals were recognized and honored by being allowed to hold a procession on the three holy days after Christmas. Deacons on St. Stephen's Day, priests on St. John's Day, and choir boys on the feast day of the Holy Innocents. The children slaughtered by Herod's men in their search for the infant Jesus. This spread quickly to France and England and remained a custom throughout the Middle Ages. In the 12th century, the cult of St. Nicholas of Myra, patron saint of the children, became popular in Western Europe. And this reinforced the popularity of the tradition of Feast of the Boys. Excuse me. The boy bishop was chosen by the choir boys, being one of them. He had to be good-looking with a fine singing voice. The boy bishop was dressed in a jeweled mitre and velvet vestments embroidered with gold. He and his retinue paraded around the town collecting alms in return for singing at monasteries, convents, and the houses of nobles. Sometimes the money collected was donated to the boy's school. In other areas, the boy was allowed to keep whatever money was left after the cost of providing a large supper for his mates on the feast day of the Holy Innocents. As ritual reversals went, the choosing of the boy bishop to preside over services was pretty low-key. It was easier for the clergy in charge to control the boys and regulate their celebrations, as opposed to the rowdiness of adult tradesmen. Plus, this custom was less of a reversal and more of a reaffirmation of Christ's teaching of the special relationship of children to the kingdom of heaven. Okay, next chapter. He sees you when you're sleeping. Creepy characters of Christmas. Let me grab a little bit more drink here. <laughs> I tell you, it's warm in here. Water is good for you anyway, right? All right. As you lie there, just, oh, man. As you lie there, snug in your bed, with sugar plums dancing the conga line in your imagination, that's me every night. Keep in mind that Santa Claus isn't the only mythical figure that might be sliding down your chimney and creeping around under your tree in search of milk and cookies. There are plenty of reasons to be afraid of the dark in the deepest part of winter. Let's meet the monsters of Christmas. Krampus, the demon of Christmas. Krampus is perhaps the most familiar of the Christmas monsters, creatures that make the Grinch look like, look as cuddly as Rudolph. In recent years, he has become the grand old man of alternative Christmas celebrations. Krampus is a demonic-looking figure from Germanic folklore. He's got black skin covered with short black fur, a long, lolling red tongue, and one cloven hoof and one human foot. He's half demon and half goat, and he revels in punishing children who've landed themselves on Santa's naughty list. Krampus sometimes travels with St. Nicholas to dole out punishments, and sometimes he just shows up to take matters into his own hands. Krampus is invariably terrifying, as befits a demon. 
He wields nice whippy birch branches, nice whippy birch branches, branches with which to beat naughty children. Sometimes he uses rusty chains for the beatings. He also carries a sack for abducting the worst offenders. These reprobates are either carried off to hell, or Krampus snarfs them down for dinner. To get on Krampus's good side, some people leave out offerings at Christmas time. Santa likes milk and cookies. Krampus prefers schnapps. Can't blame him for that. In some homes, Krampus leaves a bundle of twigs painted gold, which is hung up in the house as a reminder to children to behave. Krampus is feeded on I can't I'm December fifth. I'm not I can't even begin to say that in German. Which is the eve of St. Nicholas Day. Krampischnot. 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 See, I tried it. I did try it. It's celebrated in parts of Europe and increasingly parts of America, too, with parades and parties. With parades and parties. Lebefana. Santa's tipsy other half. Move over, Mrs. Claus. Lebefana is southern Italy's answer to Santa. The legend of Christmas of the Christmas witch says that the three wise men stopped at her cottage to ask for directions to Bethlehem. Being in southern Italy, they were woefully off course. La Befana had the prettiest, cleanest, best-kept house in the village, and she was famed for her generous hospitality. She invited the Magi to spend the night at her cottage. Thrilled with the kind invitation, invitation the wise men accepted. The next morning, they invited La Befana to come with them in their search for the Christ child. La Befana begged off, saying she had far too much housework to do. After all, houses don't clean themselves, you know. A few days after the wise men left, La Befana reconsidered their offer and decided that yes, she might like to witness the birth of baby Jesus. Unfortunately, she had forgotten to ask where the wise men were headed. Ever since then, she has watered the planet searching, watered the planet searching for Bethlehem, leaving toys for good children, and coal, onions, and garlic for naughty ones. There was another darker origin story for La Befana. In this version, she is a mother who had been driven mad by the death of her only son. In her delirium of grief, she heard the story of the birth of Jesus and became convinced that he was the reincarnation of her own lost son. She left home and searched for him. After months of looking, La Befana found the Holy Family and gave baby Jesus all of her late son's possessions. In return, Jesus blessed La Befana and made her the honorary mother of every child in Italy. Now, her grief healed. La Befana travels the country giving gifts to children during the Christmas season. Just like Santa Claus, La Befana enjoys a snack when she is on her rounds with a sack full of goodies. But instead of milk and cookies, she prefers a bottle of wine and, a boiled, and, and boiled sausages with a side of broccoli. Although La Befana, like Santa, is a jolly sort, there is one thing you must remember, and that is that she doesn't like to be seen. If you catch her making her visit to your house on Christmas Eve, don't make eye contact with her, or she'll smack you in the face with her witch's broom. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Ugh. I do. I'm having a back twinge. Let's see. Santa, Saint Lucia, patron saint of the poor and blind. 
In Scandinavian tradition, the Christmas season is welcomed on St. Lucy's Day, December 13th. Young girls, usually the oldest daughter in the family, wake the family members with a breakfast of lucicator. Currant-filled buns made golden and fragrant with saffron. The girl serves this treat to the family while wearing a crown made of holly, surmounted by several of candles. St. Lucy's Day is yet another holiday observance that emphasizes the triumph of light over darkness. In the Julian calendar, the winter solstice fell on December 13th, her feast day. St. Lucy is the Catholic patron saint of the poor and blind for good reason. Lucia lived in Sicily in the late 3rd third century AD. A devout Christian, she longed for a life of, of prayerful chastity, but she faced an arranged marriage. Her husband-to-be happened to compliment Lucia's beautiful eyes, so she gouged them out and sent them to him, along with a note pleading for him to take what he most admired about her and leave the rest of her alone. Lucia was martyred in 303 AD. But Lucia has a dark side, too. In legend, Lucia was identified with Adam's first wife. She dumped Adam and took the devil as her lover, spawning a host of demon children. On her feast night, the longest night of the year, animals gained the power of speech, and her infernal children were free to roam the earth. The next morning, people celebrated with a feast of breakfast buns, saffron, Saffron yellow to acknowledge the victory of the sun rising on another day. Okay. Bell stickle. Necked rupert roof claws, swarthy peat, the dark helpers. Bell Snickle is a character from southwestern German folklore who crossed the Atlantic and now survives in Pennsylvania Dutch customs. He makes his rounds dressed in tattered clothes and raggedy furs. He visits children before Christmas as a reminder of what the season has in store for them, like Santa Claus and Krampus combined. He carries candy to reward good children and a switch to whip bad children. In modern times, Belschnickel has mellowed and uses his whip only to make noise and remind kids that they still have time to clean up their act before Christmas. Sort of like a warning shot off the bow. Technique. Belschnickel, Belschnickel, well, Belschnickel, I've heard it two ways, might have gotten his name from the German Belzen to beat or wallop, and Nickel for St. Nicholas. All right, next. No, <laughs> I'm trying, guys. You can laugh all you want. Go ahead and laugh. I'm horrible with regular names, so here we go. Nick Ruprecht, Zwarte Piet. And the Rue Classe are underlings of Belsnickel and of St. Nicholas. These characters are all, all the heavies. Their job is to beat the bad kids while letting St. Nicholas or Belsnickel reward good children with gifts. Necht Rupert, which translates into Servant Rupert, which I can deal with, Rue Classe, Rough, Nick, Rough Nicholas, and Zwarte Piet, Black Peter, all made their first appearance in a German play in 1668. This was around the time of the Protestant Reformation and the times. They were changing. They were called into existence as secular dark helpers of, of uh, Christkind, Christkindl. 
the infant Jesus, then responsible for the delivery presence. Since the general image of the angelic Christ child cannot be expected to frighten children into good behavior, menacing characters carrying switches were just the ticket. All right, Hans Trump. Monsters eat whiny children. Now remember, if you're uncomfortable with this, please don't turn me into the Facebook police or YouTube police or any place like that. Just turn the thing down and move on. Hailing from the Alsace-Lorraine region of France, Hans Trapp was another anti-Santa. But instead of just being invented by grown-ups to scare kids into good behavior, legend says that Hans Trapp was a real man. And in the best fairy tales, he was a rich, greedy, evil guy. He ran afoul of the Catholic Church somehow and was excommunicated and exiled to the forest. He would dress in raggedy scarecrow clothes and would snatch unwary children, drag them to his cave deep in the woods, kill them, and eat them. One dark and stormy night, he was in the middle of a cannibalistic child abduction, and he was struck by lightning and killed in the act. Presumably, his evil nature survived him to terrorize children for centuries afterwards. I think it's Pierre Fautard. Fau etard. F O U E T T A R D. P E R D. Father Whipper. What did I say? Father Whipper is a French version of Hans Trapp, also reportedly based on a historical figure. He was said to have been in life an evil butcher who craved the flesh of children to eat. According to the legend, three boys from rich families were on their way to religious boarding school when they stopped at his inn for the night. He lured the three boys into his butcher shop where he killed them, chopped them up, and salted them down. The theme of stranger danger is taken to the brothers' grim extremes in these cheerful holiday stories. Yeah, they are cheerful. Yeah, okay. <laughs> St. Nicholas appeared in the butcher shop, resurrected the boys, and took Pierre Faltard into his custody. The butcher became St. Nicholas's servant and, like Krampus and Zwarte Piet, was allowed to dole out punishment to children who misbehaved. Perkton, gender bender. Perkton is a dual is a dual gendered spirit who comes out during the twelve days of Christmas. I cannot say this. Sean Perkton, beautiful Perkton. Birchton is female. She gives gifts and brings good luck. Shy Perkton, ugly Perkton, is male and punishes the sinful. Okay? The Yule lads and Gryla, demonic and demonic dwarves. The Yule lads are 13 Icelandic trolls. They each have a name that matches their distinct personality, sort of like a baker's dozen of the seven dwarves. Some of the Yule lads include spoon licker, pot scraper, door sniffer, window peeper, and sausage swiper. In ancient times, they stole things and generally raised havoc and caused trouble for humans around Christmas. Yet again, they were used to scare children into good behavior. Later, though, Iceland borrowed the Norwegian Julian Nessie, which is Norway's version of Santa Claus, who brought gifts to good children. The two traditions became mingled until the formerly devilish Yule lads became kind enough to leave gifts and shoes that good children left out for them. 
All 13 of the Yule lads answered to Grilla, who is their mother. An Icelandic legend, she is an ogress who kidnaps cooks and eats children who don't obey their parents. She became associated with Christmas in the 17th century, where she was assigned to be the mother of the Yule lads. According to legend, Grida has three heads, with three icy blue eyes in each head. She has horribly long fingernails that grow in grotesque claw-like curves and horns like a goat. Her earlobes dangle down to her shoulders. She has a beard on her chin that looks like a mass of tangled, knotted yarn. She had three different husbands and 72 children, all of whom caused trouble for the humans, ranging from harmless mischief to murder. As if the household wasn't crowded enough, the Yule cat also lives with, with Bryla. Jolakko Turin, the Christmas cat. The Yule cat is not a cuddly ball of calico fluff with a red bow around his neck, as his name might suggest. In fact, his main job is to eat you. In Icelandic tradition, those who finished their work on time got new clothes for Christmas, and lazy folks lost out. To scare children into doing their chores, parents would tell them that the Yule cat could tell at a glance which, which children were lazy and needed to be eaten. They were the kids who didn't have the, at least one new item of clothing for Christmas. Parentheses. Suddenly, that itchy hand is a sweater from your great aunt Ruth isn't looking too bad, is it? Julebok, the Christmas goat. On Scandinavian-themed Christmas trees, even today, you might see a straw figure of a four-legged creature hanging from a branch, a red ribbon around its neck, curved horns sweeping proudly over its head. This is the Christmas goat, and it serves now as a good luck decoration. Like the other creatures in our Christmas rogues gallery, though, the Julebok has followed a long and winding road to the branches of the Christmas tree. The Julebok started out a thousand years ago as a reference to Thor and his two pet goats. Thor was Peter's worst. Like the other creatures in our... Oh, I'm sorry. See, this is <laughs> Peter's worst nightmare. Every night, he would slaughter his goats for the warrior's feast in Valhalla. Then he would raise them from the dead the next day to have them around and kill for that night's feast. For that night's feast. Thor's callous but sustainable treatment of his pets was commemorated for centuries in a Swedish folk custom called Julafer, on the Yule sacrifice. This ancient midwinter celebration involved an actor dressed in skins and wearing a formidable pair of horns. He was led into a room by two men who pretended to slaughter the goat while singing about it. At the end of the song, the goat jumped up, none the worse for having his throat slit. The early Christian fathers were not amused by this obviously pagan spectacle. They declared the jewel bot to be a demon. The common people took this idea and ran with it. Tales from 17th century Sweden describe the dark and demonic jewel bot roaming the countryside on December 25th, demanding gifts of food and frightening devout Christians. By the mid-1900s, though, both the Yule sacrifice and demonic Yule goat were relics of the past. The Yule goat became a cheerful symbol of good luck rather than a terrifying midwinter apparition. Mary Lloyd, Lod, L-Y-L-W-Y-D, that's it. The Christmas Carol Singing Horse Skull. Huh, 
Hope you have a nightmare tonight, kids. Mary Elweed was a gray mare. Ah, so we'll see a gray mare. Is a mischievous party animal. No, seriously. The, the gray mare is nothing more than a horse's skull with a hinged jaw, decorated with ribbons and bangles, with colorful reins on its halter. The skull is perched on the top of a pole and carried around a man and carried around by a man under a white sheet. The great mayor travels with an entourage of merrymakers who take Christmas caroling to a new level. The band goes door-to-door -door houses or pubs, because why not, and engages the inhabitants in the battle of rhyming insults, a yo mama fight inspired by Dr. Seuss. In theory, whoever st stumbles on a rhyme first loses, but, but the great mayor is invited in no matter who wins. The theory being that she is so jolly and terrifying that she scares the pace out of any evil spirits that happen to be hanging around the place. She brings good luck for the coming year just by being in the house. In Celtic Britain, the horse was a symbol of power and fertility. Rhiannon, the horse goddess and queen of the underworld, rode a majestic white horse. Horses that had ability to cross between this world and the next were depicted as white or gray. Battles of wits, too, are common in Celtic literature. So the custom of parading the gray mare in the streets at Christmas is sort of a mini-course in Celtic mythology. The gray mare, dressed in white, returns from the underworld at the turning of the year and engages the humans it meets in a rhyming battle of wits. There was, the Christian church discovered, just no way to turn the gray mare from a righteously pagan symbol into a proper Christian celebration. So they denounced her instead, preaching against the drunkenness and bowdy verses. Ironically, the practice of parading the gray mare through the streets in search of booze and off-color fun had nearly died out by the 19th century when the Reverend William Roberts wrote his book, The Religion of the Dark Ages. In it, he warned against the dangerous shenanigans of gray mare and helpfully wrote down 20 of the most common verses, thereby setting the stage for a gray mare revival. The tradition of gray mare faded through the mid-20th century, but the cheerful nonsense has become popular once again in recent years. Okay, guys, that is it for this week, and I will be back on Sunday next week to continue this book. And like I said, um, be on the lookout because... Wednesday, Tuesday, Tuesday or Wednesday, I will be reading from another book with a lot of Christmas religions from around the world. So we're going to hear similar stories and poems and things. So probably more expanded stuff, you know, about Krampus and things like that. So that'll be happening tomorrow. Oh, let me get this thing going. I keep sinking in my chair, guys. All right. Tomorrow, we're back at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Karen Clark, is medium Karen Clark, will be joining me. We're going to have a discussion about the Titanic. I've been trying, I've been wanting to do this for a while. I haven't had a chance, so we're going to go ahead and do it tomorrow. But in addition to that, Karen's going to do some re some readings, you know, some cold readings on the ship. Um, I know we know some history and everything about the ship, but uh, I think it's going to be interesting because what we're going to be doing is not only the, t the Titanic, but the area around the Titanic to see what she picks up on because there's a lot of other um, deaths and stuff that goes on over there. So we'll have to see, and we'll have to see what I can look up to see what matches up with what she gets. Because I, I know what you guys are thinking. You know, she's a psychic. 
There's a lot of news out there about the Titanic, a lot of information out there. But I think that, you know, I don't think it's going to really affect anything. I think it's going to be interesting. See if she, she can come up with any names that we can cross-verify. That's what I'm looking for is names to cross-verify. All right. That being said, I will see you guys tomorrow night at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for joining me tonight. I love reading, this, especially this book. I was so excited to get back to it. I love reading this stuff. And I hope you do too. See you tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great night.